Hello out there, all you doobie listeners. This is Adam Venrick, and welcome back to the Coffee Hour. My guest today is a Denison alum. He is a playwright and screenwriter, and the mind behind such famous plays as Complete Female Stage Beauty, which was filmed under the title Stage Beauty, as well as plays The Duchess and Casanova. Moreover, he was also the screenwriter behind last year's crime thriller, The Good Liar, starring Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen. Friends, please enjoy this interview with Jeffrey Hatcher. All right, Jeff, thank you for being here today. It's so good to talk with you again. I hope you are doing well through COVID. Well, I'm doing as well as can be expected for a 62-year-old man who doesn't exercise much. I think I'm the target audience for COVID, am I not? <laughs> you might uh, be. I'm, I'm fine. My loved ones are fine. Uh, the worst thing about it has been the closing of the theaters and you know the psychological, emotional upheaval. Um, so I'm in the same boat as millions of others, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's... You know, this was a later question, but why don't we get into it now? Let's talk about the the closing of the theaters, because that is obviously a thing that happened under coronavirus. Um, no more theaters. So what, um, what have you been doing in the absence of theaters? Well, someone did a, a piece about uh, a project I'm working on now, recently in the paper, and they calculated how many productions uh, of mine that had been postponed or canceled, and it was 37. Mm. Uh, was between March and uh, now, let's say. And, uh, you know, two of them were premieres. Uh, you know, many of them in the regional theaters, rep companies, many of them in colleges, things like that, community theaters. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the worst thing about, uh, the worst part about that is, uh, things aren't happening and there's no income. That's fun. Yeah. Um, but in terms of, you know, why we were in the theater, uh, I mean, I I have certain views about why the audience goes to the theater. I know that one of the reasons I'm in the theater is to be with people. Mm-hmm. Um, I often say that I write alone so that I can then go into a room with people, you know, actors, directors, and all that. And then we rehearse so that we can get into a room with even more people, the audience. So having that turned off is like, you know, the lost weekend. I'm a drunk and I need a bottle. Um, so it's, been, it's, it's often been rough. People will call up and they'll say, uh, well, this must be great for you writers because you have all this time to devote to your, your plays, to your writing. But in point of fact, you probably, I know, I, I spend as much or less time writing during this because the the weird distractions, the kind of low-grade depression that Michelle Obama mentioned the other day, or in my case, sometimes high-grade depression. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, one of the things that has kind of saved me this summer is that um, there's a theater here in town. This isn't promotional, but Park Square in St. Paul, they always do murder mysteries in the summer, and they've mm-hmm. done a lot of mine. And they were going to do one of mine this summer, but they had to postpone it next year. But uh, the fellow running the play said, well, what if we did a Zoom murder mystery and did it episodically? And it kind of gave me, uh, well, not kind of, it did give me an injection of, of uh, hope and excitement. And so I'm in the middle of that now. I write 
on uh, the weekends. We rehearse and shoot it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's edited on Thursday. And we Zoom it out every Friday. And it's been fantastic. It's fun. Uh, you know, we get to interact with actors like I'm interacting with you on Zoom now. Mm-hmm. So it's been a, a huge um, um, fab for all this and, and a lot of fun. And And I should say that there are other theater people doing other things, like uh, I have a friend, a couple of friends who are doing uh, backyard theater. They travel around and do theater in people's backyards and driveways. Uh, there have been a couple of productions of my adaptation of Turn of the Screw, live ones, where the actors wear those plastic visors. Mm. You know, And uh, I, I, I didn't see it, but I'm told that, you know, after the first few moments or minutes, the audience really didn't think about those visors and they kind of went away um although that that's a play that will allow a certain presentational theatricality yes but uh, you know people who are finding imaginative creative ways to deal with this thing <clears throat> those are my heroes well and actually that that um not to change topic too dramatically but i'm looking now at your uh your body of work and it's interesting you brought up turn of the screw and murder mysteries because going through it seems like a lot of your work appears to be either adaptations of classic horror tales or uh or mysteries um and in fact you you just or you recently wrote uh, a screenplay uh that was made into a film with helen mirren and ian mckellen called the good liar um what was that like well, first, let me say about Turn of the Screw, you should probably do Turn of the Screw because you could play the male character. There's a male and a female. Mm-hmm. And the male character plays all the male roles and also a few female. I think you'd have fun with it. Oh, cool. Uh, but uh, oh, The Good Liar was great fun because it was uh, Ian McKellen who was in Mr. Holmes, which mm-hmm. I wrote a few years ago, also directed by Bill Condon. And so Warner Brothers New Line had options, this book, The Good Liar, and they called Bill, they called me, and uh, you know, the idea was to do it for Ian, and then we got Helen, which was you know, absolutely glorious. Now, they're two of the greatest actors of this and the last century, and it was great to be on set with them and watch them work together. You know, anytime someone flubbed the line, oh, my dear, I'm very sorry, I'm such a blank. <laughs> oh, no, 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 it was me, it was me, and I wasn't really even ready for it. I'm, I'm glad you went up. Oh, being kind to me, because I'm, oh. So, <laughs> it was a riot to be with them. Oh, I bet. Um, well, looking looking back over your work, and by the way, thank you for saying I would be good in Turn of the Screw. That's a great compliment. Um, I, you were nominated... Um, for an Edgar Award for an, uh, an adaptation that you did of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde a few years ago. And what I found interesting about that is the way you had it done um, was you had Mr. Hyde played by four actors, including one actress. Um, what prompted that? That's such an interesting way to do it. Well, I was asked to adapt that by uh, David Ira Goldstein at Arizona Theatre Company. And whenever you're asked to adapt something that's been adapted a lot, mm-hmm. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde has been adapted dozens, if not hundreds of times. I think in one sense, uh, you can't help but react against uh, previous adaptations, ones that you like and ones that you don't like. And I've never seen that trick before where Hyde was played by multiple actors. 
but it also struck me that it was something connected to the ideas in the original book. If, if you take the uh, potion or the serum that uh, Jekyll ingests, drinks, to become Hyde, and you think of it as a drug or alcohol, mm -hmm. well, you're not always high the same way. So why be Hyde the same way? <laughs> I was drunk the same way. So it would seem to me that uh, given different circumstances, different... Uh, um, doses uh, and uh, you know the addictive um, patterns and the and the ways that sometimes you need more and more of the stuff that that uh, Hyde could be personified or rather that the condition could be personified best by different actors. A brutal actor might be physically big. Uh, a more pre uh, presentable actor, you know, the Hyde who can actually walk into a restaurant or a bar. And then the female Hyde, who has you know, the, the qualities that would, we would call the feminine mm -hmm. uh, and might be able actually to uh, be empathetic with another woman. So the, these, it, it kind of came in a flash, to tell you the truth, and then I ran with it. Well, I, I, I just I wanted to bring it up because I thought it was especially <clears throat> brilliant. Um, but let's let's go back now, um, because as you know, but the audience doesn't until now, I had prepared a list of questions. And one thing I wanted to ask you, um, so you grew up in Steubenville, Ohio, um, which is a town sort of on the Ohio-Pennsylvania border. And then you went to Denison University. And I'm curious, where along the line did you develop an interest in playwriting? Well, I know that I've been writing since I was a little kid. I can't say if it was 10, 11, 12, or what have you, but I always did some writing. Um, so I must have had that in the back of my head as, as a potential career. There was one summer when I would go to my father's office late at night and using his big IBM Selectric that the secretary had, I typed my own screenplay version of Moonraker, the Ian Fleming novel. Yeah. This is before the movie you know, that Roger Moore did in the late yeah. 70s. So somewhere, I hope, somewhere in a box or a, a, uh, a suitcase is about a 180-page, you know, onion skin adaptation of Moonraker someplace with, you know, interior, M's office, day. Uh, but at a certain point, uh, I really wanted to be an actor. And so in high school and uh, certainly most of college, I, I, I'm like you, you know, if I, if I were to show you a photograph of me at your age, we're very similar. You know, we both like the kind of bearded Orson Welles 1938 look. Um, so, uh, so I always acted, but I always played um, the middle-aged or older guys, you know, so I was always the one with the, you know, the brandy glass thing, but Inspector, how could have I, how could have I killed the man? Um, and then I go to New York and I'm 22 years old and I want to play the same roles. And they're like, hey, you know, we've got 50 year olds. Mm -hmm. We don't need a 22 year old with white gunk in his hair and a, and a cane going like, oh, I'm an old <laughs> man. So, you know, I had an acting crisis of confidence. And a friend of mine from Denison, Graham Slayton, who was a few years older, he said, uh, well, you know, you always did some kind of writing. I would write after shows and skits and a couple of film scripts for the, um, you know, the cinema department. Mm -hmm. And he kind of egged me on. I said, you know, focus on that. So one thing led to another. Uh, well, I like that. I was actually, I'm glad you brought up Orson Welles because, um, 
he, I, I distinctly remember he also had an adaptation, one of the many of Jekyll and Hyde. Um, but that does. Okay, be, I, I didn't. I didn't know that he does. He, well, supposedly, it was something he wrote as a child um, that his father let him perform. Um, so it's a juvenilia adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde. But Jeff, that does beg the question: How do you feel about frozen peas? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've seen that, of course, and I've seen that Paul Masson where he, he's obviously had too much, <laughs> and they're funny. But you know, I. It's one of those things where I think, boy, what a huge talent, what a semi-tragic figure. Mm-hmm. So I get as much of a laugh as, as, I, as I could. He's being awful in both of them. Yes. And there's some story in one of the books about him that came out recently, and he had all these unpaid interns and assistants, and he's at you know, the Beverly Hills Hotel or someplace like that, and the assistant comes late at night and finds him inside with like boxes of Colonel Sanders Kentucky Fried Chicken and Coke, you know, night working on a, a script or and he's eating, he's eating uh, the chicken and it's a mess and he looks at her and he's ashamed to be caught. Because aside from anything else, he's not supposed to eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. He's supposed to eat, you know, wonderful gastronomic meals prepared by the greatest chefs in the world. And he looks at her with chicken in his mouth and he says, <laughs> Do you think I like living like this? And it's kind of horrible because there he is like 300 some pounds yeah. and, you know, he can't really fight his indulgences. No. Um, but, uh, but, you know, he's an interesting case because I think most of us who become playwrights uh, start as actors. Mm-hmm. Most, not all, you know, 80%. So we know what actors, sometimes we're not the best actors in the world. And Wells wasn't the best actor in the world either. He was a no. very good actor, but you know he wasn't Olivier or no. wasn't Marlon Brando, anything like that. No, but, his, his Irish accent leaves uh, a lot to be desired. Well, yeah, <laughs> my wife was talking about the other. She says she cannot get through Lady from Shanghai because of ah oh, yeah, my name is Michael. Yeah, <laughs> come on over. <laughs> you think well, you know Wells developed that Irish accent to distract us from the fact that we're saying you know you're gaining weight again or. How'd you get so lucky to be married to Rita Hayworth? Yeah. Um, There's even a story, probably the most famous picture of Wells. There are probably two famous ones. One is in Citizen Kane, you know, with his hand out when he's on the political platform. But there's that great shot of him in The Third Man when uh, he's first seen on screen. The light hits him and he's got this great smile, this ironic smirk. and uh, But he's not showing his teeth. And it's kind of a downturn smile. And Joseph Cotton later said, well, Orson developed that smile because he felt that when he smiled normally, it shoved his cheeks up and he looked fat. So he developed this downward smile so that he would look like he had cheekbones. Um, So the most famous image of him is based on his insecurity, but it actually translates as great power. I did not know that, but I love that. And it does work for Harry Lyme as a character. Oh, yeah. Um, let me look at the next question, because we got sidetracked talking about Orson Welles and his frozen pee outburst. Um, so, yes, you, you developed an interest in writing um, after your crisis of confidence as an actor. Um, and we've already talked a little bit about patterns in your 
work. Um, but I would like to ask what topics in particular interest you? Well, I should first probably note that the first full length play that I wrote, which has never been produced and justly so, uh, has the title impaired faculties and it took place at a, uh, college like Denison, uh, and even some of the um, characters in the play were modeled on professors Denison uh, from back in the 70s. The, uh, the structure I stole from the three sisters, four distinct scenes or mm -hmm. acts uh, that jumped time. But the tone and the uh, texture I basically stole from Simon Gray, you know, uh, dry, ironic, British academic, um, you know, comedy of manners with sadness uh, fluted in. Mm. Uh, but it was actually kind of a great way to, to learn because I think sometimes by impersonating somebody else's structure and somebody else's style, um, you start to develop your own and you just get better about technique. Um, I, I would say that in, in terms of the uh, subject matter I'm, I'm drawn to, obviously mystery, obviously comedy, uh, a little bit horror, not so much. I suppose Turn of the Screw and Jekyll and Hyde fall into that category. But, for example, my son is a huge Lovecraft uh, mm. aficionado. And, uh, I'm, you know, I just don't get into that stuff the way he does. Um, but uh, I like anything to do with clues. Uh, I've, I've written a lot of mysteries. I've written some for TV. I did Columbo's back in the 90s. And uh, even recently, I've uh, had the good fortune to... Uh, be asked to adapt things like Wait Until Dark and Dial In For Murder. Mm. Plays that you could say, well, they don't really need that adaptation, but for one reason or another, an artistic director asks, and so we find a new way in. So uh, I love doing that kind of thing. Um, I love doing monologue plays. Um, one of my favorite things is to put an actor up on stage in a direct address relationship with the audience. Part of my adaptation of Turn of the Screw is that the governess speaks to the audience and tries to convince them that her story is true and that her behavior has been uh, just. So I, I, I like that kind of format, too. That That is quite interesting. Um, you have one play, and I'm sorry, I'm looking through your list. Um, it's, uh, it's a collection of three monologues that are all centered around a funeral home. Yes, three viewings. That was the first time I wrote a, uh, a monologue trio. Um, and uh, uh, I'd written one piece, which is the first uh, one of those plays. And then the theater said, well, what would you think of adding two or three others? And so I thought for a bit and came up with uh, the other two. And I think I've done a couple more since. There's another trio uh, called Murderers. Uh, and I've done one on my own, which is just me. It's called Jeffrey... Hamlet. And going back to Orson Welles, it's uh, a story of when I did uh, an adaptation for Hamlet when I was in the fifth grade in Steubenville. Um, so I performed that myself. So I, I love direct address. I mean, a, a lot of it is like uh, stand-up, of course. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that kind of connection with an audience is, is, is really wonderful. Some actors, I think most actors uh, can do it. Some of them uh, have trouble looking at the audience in the eye, you know, freaks them out. Um, but I think that's great. There, there's something daring and scary about it, which I uh, uh, think keeps both the audience and the actor on their toes. Yeah, certainly. Um, let me look at my next question here. 
Um, so what advice that actually brings us to a good point, what advice would you give to, you know, people who are just starting out in theater making, playwriting, you know, especially people my age who are, you know, maybe about ready to enter the the quote unquote real world for the first time? Well you're what, a junior this year? I'm a senior. You're a senior. I'm this a senior year. this year. I know. Did I meet you when you were a uh, a freshman or a sophomore? A sophomore. Oh, well, for whatever reason, I thought you were a freshman then, so oh, forgive me. I appreciate uh, it. I was young. I was young for uh, my yes, year. Yes, and now you look weary, haggard, you know, dissolute. <sighs> That's uh, coronavirus for you. <laughs> Yes, yes, the, uh, the travail, it, but see, that's great, because you can be like, uh, you know, a character from a hundred years ago, that consumption, you know, it's like, you cough romantically. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's, it's going to be trickier for your generation than mine, simply because of the economic situation right now, but oh, yes. as they say, challenges always bring with them their, their own opportunities. Uh, I, I guess I'll say what I, I would say to anyone who uh, wants to write for the theater, wants to be a playwright, that it's terribly important to uh, try on as many hats as possible, by which I mean it's important to have acted in plays. It's important to have been on the crew of a play. It's important even to uh, you know spend some time uh, seeing uh, you know, how they paint the, the sets and, uh, and cut the wood. And I would even suggest hanging around the box office to find out what is said over the telephone when an, um, you know, a, a subscriber calls up and says, what's this new play by Jeffrey Hatcher or Adam Frost, Darren, you know? Yes. Um, and, and see how it's described. Um, everything informs you, everything teaches you something, but most important of all is to understand the theater space. And the theater space is different. Um, you know, depending on the theater you go into, there are all the similarities in every theater, but there are thrust proscenians in the round, garage theaters, outdoor. Uh, just know what the theater space can do and what it can't do. Uh, a lot of people write to the theater, but their um, technical understanding of how the stage works, uh, they actually import from film and television. Mm -hmm. And so you get things that are cuts um, as opposed to theatrical live stage transitions. So it's, it's important to know what it takes to move from one scene to another. And sometimes it's the little, littlest thing. You know, Shakespeare very seldom requires any piece of stage scenery. You know, there's an arras in Hamlet, but that's only because you need something for Polonius to hide behind, which Hamlet can stab him through. Mm -hmm. You need a bed for Othello so that he can strangle Desdemona on it. But you almost never need the trappings of scenery because the dialogue tells you very quickly where you are. Uh, sometimes costumes tell you where you are. So it's, it's good to experience. You can learn these things from books, of course, and classes, but... You know, to have been in a play uh, as an actor or to have worked backstage and moved things about, that tells you more because it gets in your bones. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, so th this was sort of already covered, but speaking of people who, who, who think about theater in terms of film... Um, you have written a number of screenplays. Uh, quite a few of them are based off your own work. For instance, you adapted 
complete female stage beauty into stage beauty with... Was that Claire Danes and Billy Crudup? Yes. Okay. It was. All right. Um, so how did you come to make the transition into screenwriting? Well, it was that play, um, because uh, the, the play itself got uh, some attention, and there were uh, a couple of Hollywood uh, producers, studios, uh, who uh, that wanted to do it, and uh, my agents arranged that I would get to write the screenplay. So uh, I, I would... Uh, <laughs> I would definitely advise any screenwriter, write a play that somebody wants to make into a film. Um, that's, uh, that's a good way to get into it. Um, and, and it is. I mean, I, I sound like I'm being pompous and, and jokey about it, but um, Hollywood is often looking for what they call intellectual property, right? Mm-hmm. They want something that already exists that they can look at and say, yeah, I think that'll work. Again, they like novels. They like uh, articles and newspaper stories. Um, so, uh, complete female stage beauty happened to be written in kind of the style that I was talking about—the Shakespearean style, whereby you have a lot of different scenes, but you don't need a lot of stuff on stage. So it moved, uh, and it moved fairly quickly. So, uh, uh, adapting it to film wasn't as hard as adapting, say, a one set play mm-hmm. you know with one character or two characters those things you know become you know they try to open them up and suddenly you realize that everything about the play that was good was because it was you know, one set two characters you know it, it, uh, yeah so, yeah but i so basically i got lucky that i was asked to adapt something of my own and it you know it led to me actually being asked to adapt or work on a lot of scripts that were vaguely set in the 17th or 18th century. Complete famous stage beauty set at the, um, uh, in the 1660s. But, you know, for Hollywood, you know, they say, oh, well, it's uh, feathers and carriages and swords. You know, 1660, that's like 1780, that's like 1820. Um, uh, it gets generally thrown into costume drama mm. or, uh, you know, uh, sword and sword and sandal pictures or whatever they call so and that led to a lot of other work uh, in that vein so and i used to joke that i was slowly working myself up into the 20th century because um so many of those screenplays from the early 2000s were you know, stage beauty was 1660s casanova was the 1740s the duchess was the 1780s it's like i gotta get into at least the 19th century um but uh, yeah, it was fortunate though. I was I was lucky about it. A lot of writers go to Hollywood and they pitch, and I pitch too. Um, but it's it's much better if you have something to show them. I think. Mm-hmm. So if if one were ultimately wanting to work in film or television, you would recommend starting with theater or something concrete that you could show. Well, uh, you know, there's there's nothing. Some people will say you, you pitch something so that they'll pay you to write it. Mm-hmm. And I certainly like being paid as much as the next guy. But uh, I'll give you an example. Um, John Patrick Shanley is mm-hmm. a terrific playwright and a very and terrific screenwriter. So he writes, as a spec script, Moonstruck. It's, it's, it's a terrific screenplay, and people want to do it so badly that there's a bidding war. And... I believe the story goes that he said, okay, I might not take the top bid. I'm going to take the bid that says not a word of the screenplay may be changed without my permission. 
And that's important because the business and cultural differences between film and theater are, are vast. In the theater, playwrights write um, a play, and the playwright owns the play and then leases the play to theater producers. We always own it, and then we get a percentage back on royalties from productions. But a screenwriter sells his work. You're either an employee of a production company, a studio, or you write a screenplay and they buy it from you and now it's theirs. So too often the idea is, uh, oh, let's sell it, you know, make a lot of money and what they do with it, well, they'll do what they do. Mm-hmm. Shanley made it uh, conditional. You do not touch my words. And, uh, and so they, it came out with a very good movie. Moonstruck's terrific. So I, I, I think having something that you can say, look, you can see it, you can read it, you know it's good, you want it or not, let's try to agree on a price, is better than walking around town pitching things, and then maybe they'll pay you, uh, and then becoming their employee. I mean, I'm not saying that Hollywood people are bad or anything like that, but they're very polite whenever they want to change something in your script. But you always know that when push comes to shove, they can have somebody else do it. You know, the deal usually is for one draft, two drafts, maybe a polish or two, but eventually the deal comes to the end of its agreement, and Mm -hmm. if the script isn't what they want it to be, you know, they'll find someone else to do it. So uh, the the more a playwright or a screenwriter can uh, uh, exercise ownership, uh, the more it will give that screenwriter power. I see. That's quite interesting. I I didn't know all those particulars. Um, I actually I didn't even know that Shanley wrote the movie Moonstruck, but that's an interesting little tidbit for today. Well, but here's the irony: he writes Moonstruck, he gets a great deal for it. He gets the, exactly the cast. He wants a beautiful cast. You know, it's funny, it's heartbreaking, it's sweet. Uh, but part of his deal was he got to write and direct his next movie, which I believe was Joe versus the Volcano, which is a terrible movie. <laughs> uh, but he made Doubt, and Doubt is fantastic. Um, you know, I've never seen the film of Doubt. I, I, I think the play version, uh, I saw the very first production of that, was fantastic, but I've never mm-hmm. seen the film. The film is good. I, um, oh gosh, I think it was... Streep and Adams and Davis and Hoffman. I mean, that's a good, that's a great cast. Um, I've got it around here somewhere, but you know. Yeah. Um, I just, I, I mainly know that play as the play that most starting actors are almost guaranteed to do a scene from in some acting class. Um, just because it has the parts. But... Uh, oh, yeah, th- I think when I was at Denison, uh, that was one of the Directing class uh, favorites to do. Oh, we still do it. Actually, I just took a directing class, and Doubt was done. Um, Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune, which... Was that what you were referencing when you were talking about two-person, one-scene plays that were made worse by not being that in the movie? Well, not specifically. Uh, not specifically that, uh, that, uh, that play, but that's a very good example of what we were just talking about, mm-hmm. yes. Um, well, this brings up a good point, Jeff. Um, what what are some plays that have influenced you particularly? Oh, well, it's interesting because uh, um, I don't know. I, I'll, I'll try to answer that, but it might be more about playwrights um, as opposed to plays. Uh, I can say 
easily Harold Pinter was the most influential playwright uh, on my college and post-college life. And to this day, if I'm writing a contemporary play, I often find that I've fallen into a Pinter rhythm. I might have a character saying, you're looking a little under the weather, by which I mean you're looking rough. You know what I mean? You're looking rough, a bit under it, you know? And, and I have to banish that because I'm impersonating Pinter, and I've, I've acted in Pinter, and I, I know his play, not backwards and forwards, but I know him pretty well. So that had an influence. Um, Shaw, Chekhov, uh, Kaufman and Hart, uh, Neil Simon, mm. um, uh, uh, Alan Ickborn, mm. and uh, Simon Gray, as I said. So, uh, and which isn't the same thing as saying that I think those are the best playwrights. I mean, I, I have all the respect in the world for Carol Churchill and David Mamet and August Wilson and all mm. that, but they didn't have the same influence. Like, oh, I want to do something like that, you know? Yeah. Of course. Well, and in the time that I've known you, um, I didn't actually know you when you were producing your adaptation of Government Inspector at Denison. That was my freshman year, but I, I did not act in it. Um, but I did have the pleasure of table reading your uh, your modern your more modern adaptation of Ben Jonson's The Alchemist, which was a very fun play to be a part of. Um... What actually? What drew you to those two plays specifically? Because they're so interesting. Well, in both cases, an artistic director called up and said, "Hey, do you want to do this?" Mm -hmm. um, with the government inspector, the thing was I'd been in it at Denison in 1977, and it was a very good translation. But I just didn't think it was terribly funny. I played I played the judge, and oh, um, I always thought this is a great play. And the structure is perfect, and I wish the words were funnier. <laughs> and so many, many years later, what, uh, 25 years later, almost 30 years later, uh, Joe Dowling, who was then the artistic director of the Guthrie, said he was interested in a version of Government Inspector, and I, I jumped at it. And so I worked on it probably longer than most plays that I work on, um, you know, getting the jokes right, so to speak. And it's, you know, it's a classic situation. A guy comes into town, everybody thinks he's important. He's not. They grovel before him. Um, you know, he basically robs the place blind and then leaves, and they're all shown to be fools. It's a, a classic fable, parable, and you see it impersonated or, or copied endlessly in like, TV sitcoms and other movies um, for, you know, for the what hundred or two hundred years since it was uh, first produced. Oh yeah, um, it's it's a great satire. Some people see it real as a realistic uh, discussion of corruption. Some people see it as a bouncy comedy about corruption. Uh, there are many different ways to to look at it. Uh, the Alchemist is similar because it's also about corruption and about greed and venality. And again, in this case, uh, Jesse Berger at Red Bull in New York asked me to adapt it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it, that one is about what can I get, can I get something for nothing? Can I get an advantage over my competitor? Uh, can I turn dross into gold? And, um, you know, naturally right before the pandemic hit, we were in 
a political time where we thought, boy, we've been living with a lot of dross that's painted with gold, or at least gold gilt. <laughs> um, and one of the premises of the uh, of Ben Jonson's play is that it's set during the plague. So a lot of the people in London are out of town, and that's why these three uh, uh, con men, or con women too, uh, are able to use this guy's house during the plague. So I don't know what we'll end up doing when we actually do the show. It was supposed to have premiered in June of 2020. Now it's going to be June of 2021. Mm. But uh, I'm sure, I'm sure it'll, it'll pick up you know, some vibes from COVID. There, there are sometimes dangers of trying to make a, a play especially an adaptation, suddenly seem too relevant. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, both, of, both of those playwrights, Gogol and Ben Johnson, mm-hmm. had a very jaundiced, gimlet-eye view of humanity. Yeah. Um, and, but yet they have great senses of humor, so there's a, a huge amount of bitterness and bile and acid in the comedies, but it, it's, it's done in, in beautiful clockwork structure and a certain buoyancy that uh, allows you to uh, not, you, you don't have to take a bath in the bile, no. you know? It's like Shaw said, if you want to teach an audience a lesson, you better make them laugh or they'll kill you. <laughs> I do like that. Um, what else? We talked about theater during the pandemic. Um, we talked about young creative people. I, and we've kind of been peppering this throughout, but... Oh, are you all right? No, I was just coughing. I'm sorry. All right. Um, got, you know, quick little shot of COVID. Yes. Through the phone lines. Um, but, yeah, before we, before we go, um, are, are there any particularly funny anecdotes or stories you'd like to pepper in? Because you've, you've put in a number of good ones so far, Jeff. This is easily one of my funniest episodes. Well, let me think. Um, I know one from Denison back in the 90s. Ooh. Um, I came on uh, the first of the two Jonathan Reynolds um, playwriting fellowships I did, and we were doing my adaptation of Melville's Pierre, Mm -hmm. a big book that almost nobody reads. (laughs) And uh, we opened it on a Friday, and the next day, a Saturday, I saw John Ferris, the director and the former chair there in the village in Granville, and he said that the actor who was playing one of the roles, uh, it was Reverend Fallsgrave, had uh, had a, a appendectomy, and he couldn't act for a few days, mm-hmm. and I had to go on for him. And I protested, of course, oh, I couldn't possibly, but of course I wanted to. Now, sure, I want to get back on that Denison stage with the kids, you know. And uh, it turned out to be far more complicated than I imagined. It was a supporting role, but uh, it was a uh, play where the design that Peter Posey had done uh, meant that the actors had to keep rearranging the set after every scene, and it was very choreographed. And to be thrown into that was like, huh, what? Uh, it's like being at the World Again at the State Fair. Um, but the worst moment was at the intermission. Um, the uh, stage manager came down from the booth and said, put some powder on your head. Your bald head is blinding the audience. I guess the lights would bounce off it. I guess they'd never had a bald person on the Denison stage at the time. So I'll throw you that because it's a Denison story. It's a good one. What I pictured was that, like, War of the Worlds, if my head had reflected the light and it was, you know, like, it was burning people out row after row after row. (laughs) Oh, I do like that. 
Um, no, that's always... Well, and I especially like that story, Jeff, um, because... Peter Palze is in it, um, so it's always it's always good to know that he's an evergreen institution at Denison. <laughs> well, he, he came up with a wonderful set idea, which was simply the frontispiece of the book Pierre, where it said Pierre of the Ambiguity by Herman Melville, and it was this big, looked like a big uh, front first page of a book on stage, but it was made out of blocks, and then after the first scene, it pulled apart, and it was turned into chairs, tables, desks, archways. It was a, really a brilliant idea, gravestones, but it meant that the actors had to remember every six or seven minutes where exactly they had to pick up block number three, move it to place number seven, and, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's much harder work than memorizing dialogue. Yeah, it is. It, it certainly is. Um, well, it is a great story. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? I've kept you for about an hour, and I appreciate your time. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, this has been great fun for me. Thank you. I'm very glad. Uh, it's great to talk with you again. Um, and, yeah, is there anything you... I know you said you um, you haven't been... Uh, as prolific as some people have been bragging about being during COVID, but is there anything big that you've been working on? I know you've been doing some of the the Zoom, the weekly Zoom theater. Well, I have been working on a few things. Uh, uh, some of them are some television series ideas that uh, I've been working on with different production companies, and we pitch those on occasion. Occasion, um, we're developing a uh, maybe six or eight part series based on an American tragedy, the Theodore Dreiser book. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just finished, uh, I I think it's the last draft, at least for now, of a a screenplay about uh, the Manchester United soccer team in the 1940s and 50s. Um, It's called Busby Babes. It was about a famous team in that time, um, many of whom were killed in a plane crash in Mm -hmm. 1958. So, you know, I've been working. Uh, It's just not the same sort of thing. No. No, of course. Um, Well, Jeff, that is it for questions for me. I appreciate uh, the time that you've given us. Um, It's always good to talk with alums. And, yeah, I have nothing to add to that, so I am going to let you go and very quickly sign off, so thank you so much. That was Jeff Hatcher, dear friends. And we had a wonderful time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Coffee Hour. And I will see you next week.